I guess there was some discussion about talking about peripherals. That's, that's what we had right. discussed. Right. The idea of the peripheral <clears throat> as a as a cultural form, really. looking through some uh, old material from Bell, AT&T, Western Electric, mm. about uh, early illegal attachments to the phone, which introduces the idea of the phone, the telephone, the original telephone, mm. as gadget, because you need the gadget before you can have things that attach to it, the peripheral. Right. Um, the idea right. of attachment requires a certain kind of consumer object I guess, in this case, a consumer electronic object. Mm -hmm. So, I I guess if we want to kind of trace a genealogy of this idea of the peripheral, the technological mm, addendum uh, to back to something like the phone, we 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 can start there. But, you know, I think it's interesting just how... Naturally, in, in the course of our own lives, we, we sort of come across these ideas. And I know at least for me, and I think we've, we've talked about this earlier, is uh, where, where we first sort of saw this idea of the peripheral was uh, both being children of the 80s, I suppose. The kind of uh, accessories, uh, video game accessories that started coming out, you know, with something like the Nintendo Entertainment System and then later in la- later generations like uh, Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, this idea of the peripheral was uh, something that was common in gaming. Right. I mean, uh, you know, it had never really reached the extent uh, that it did in the, the example that we had reflected on earlier of the Game Boy. Of course, there were attachments to earlier game systems, but they were a lot more controlled. I'm thinking of the original Nintendo, you know, the lockout chip, right? The cartridges were sold through Nintendo, right? And yes, there were illegal uh, off-patent or off-license cartridges, Mm -hmm. uh, and there were devices like the Game Genie, which plugged through the cartridge into the, the main system, but it was never quite at the extent that we eventually saw, right, with, with things like the Game Boy, which had such obvious defects, I guess, uh, the lack of a light or, you know, the mono... Limitations, yeah, right. certain limitations that were inherent to the base unit. Uh, and then, of course, there were all these peripheral attachments, add-ons that could somehow compensate for uh, Game Boy's... Well, I mean, there was a lot of flexibility because not all attachments to those kinds of, you know, once we have the handheld device, not all attachments have to be uh, electronic ones, right? I mean, the lights are basically mechanically fitted. The form is fitted, so it snaps on. But there's no, I mean, some of them do connect in various ways, but there's no inherent need for that kind of electronic fit, right? They just have sort of a more purely physical fit, Sure. I have one that's just a literal magnifying glass uh, that you would, uh, you know, attach 
say, three inches uh, away from the actual screen, and that makes it look bigger. Right. I mean, which is hilariously very in line with some of the early illegal or unauthorized attachments for the telephone. Because in the in the the catalog that we were looking at, uh, which perhaps we'll post uh, online as an accompaniment mm-hmm. to this uh, uh, project, I believe they've been scanned by Google Books. Uh, so those uh, you know original, I think you know they might have appeared in the Bell Telephone News and similar kinds of outlets. But they were mostly physical kinds of attachments. They weren't things that interfaced with the network or with the which in the the time of the early telephone is sort of the the software, right? You know, I, you know, if we were to compare it to the game systems that we're just talking mm-hmm. about, that's the, you know, the electronic fit. They don't have necessarily an tr- electronic fit. They have this physical attachment. Right. Um, and then we get, like, the Get Smart style cone of silence, physical attachment that goes on the telephone so mm-hmm. you can have a private conversation <laughs> on the telephone through this physical constraint mm-hmm. that's, you know, preventing your voice from carrying. Similar, similar kinds of ridiculous... Uh, physical contraptions that are attached to the the phone. And that's what we saw as kids with the Game Boy, right? We saw magnifying glasses. We saw, you know, lights that you put separate batteries in. We saw... uh, Button enlargement attachments. Yeah, alternative control schemes that just push the buttons through, you know, extremely poorly designed pieces of plastic. Uh, Pro pro controller attachments. (laughs) Do we know how successful these um, early phone peripheral attachments were? I mean, can we go back in some kind of archive and and see uh, the the sale figures, for example? Or uh, I mean, that's a that's a good question. Um, I, I would I would guess that it would be difficult to reconstruct um, certainly in those early days the sale figures simply because the corporate records of whatever companies were making those attachments are probably not extant um, unless, you know, they, they evolved into other corporations that then became successful. Uh, my understanding is for the most part these are relatively minor operations uh, that don't even rise to the level of competing telephone companies like the, the tele- you know, after the original telephone patents expire, then we have the first telephone competitors you know, who are not off patent, who are legally allowed to make telephones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of those corporate archives still exist. But uh, these kinds of attachments seem to be made by companies that aren't, you know, particularly well-known unless, as I said, they became, changed their name or were acquired by later companies where we might have those in the archives. I mean, there's some suggestion that they were successful to a point because AT&T was certainly threatened enough by them to pursue legal action or to write about them in their in, internal uh, publications like, mm. you know, the, the telephone news or similar kinds of outlets. That might be perceptual rather than financial success, right? They mm. they achieve some market share. And I mean, I guess, you know, I don't know how successful the, the Game Boy attachments were, but you certainly saw them a lot. Yeah, and I know, I mean, I had them and my sister had them. Uh, some of my friends, I remember seeing them on the playground. And, yeah, they just weren't necessarily as practical uh, to carry around as just the base unit itself. So I think a lot of people bought them and then, you know, got s- sick of sticking them on and then basically just went back to the 
Yeah, I mean, we, we were all lured in by the idea of a better controller for the Game Boy, right? But uh, Those third-party con- controllers never seem to work right, though. Yeah, you know, it's... It, it, I mean, it still exists because uh, not too long ago, since I, with with all the scholarly work that we do, <laughs> don't really have a lot of time to play video games, and I, I do miss playing them. So I, you know, I didn't want to invest in like a real game system. So I bought a, a Vita, you know, the the PlayStation portable, you know, successor. Uh, right, right. And um, the the first thing I did when I bought it was I bought a ridiculous mount for it to make it more comfortable to hold in your hands. And it also does that ridiculous thing where it goes over the top shoulder buttons with its own buttons and you push down on them. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the lure, same. Yeah, it's it, the lure of the peripheral. It, uh, it's siren call has seduced us all. And, and I, I somehow kind of like it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it, the buttons don't work very well. You know, that's, that's clear. You know, the plastic is not particularly nice uh but it it makes it feel more personal i don't know it's like some kind of customization that i've done right i've i've layered another component (laughs) on top of it that is not the standard sort of thing it's suited now to me you know where i believe it is yeah and what's interesting when you start thinking about um peripherals and this kind of attachment aesthetic and broader design terms is that it seems like this idea of just, you know, building attachment on attachment on attachment uh, really kind of dominates a certain idea of the future, right? So imagine something like, you know, Brazil, the Terry Gilliam film, right? These, this kind of Orwellian vision of the future where it's this uh, odd mix of like mid-century um, – you know, bureaucratic infrastructure with a, you know, uh, post-industrial or, you know, post-modern, whatever, uh, attachment, right. uh, fetishism. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's a common feature, I think, of this kind of, uh, vision of the future. Yeah. This y- odd mixture of, of old and new. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. Thinking about, um, Brazil and the idea of the ducks, you know, the the commercial pitchman who's, you know, I want to talk to you about your ducks and, <laughs> you know, you can you can get them in different colors and, you know, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're – Brazil is an interesting case because they're weirdly presented as both a kind of hodgepodge attachment third party but yet mm-hmm. we know – you know, through the context of the movie, that right. they are in fact centrally organized, right? The the ducks you can only get them through, uh, you know, the government, and they're they're kind of perfect commodity, but they're not perfect at all, right? The movie sort of reveals their imperfection, mm-hmm. and one of the things about the peripheral in this history, you know, from things like the telephone through to Game Boy or even telephones and handheld systems, et cetera, et cetera, today is that they somehow rail against the commodity, right? The perfect, you know, the Nintendo-issued Game Boy or the Bell-issued telephone. Um, Mm. Yeah, Yeah. it is this kind of, you know, everyone wants to kind of hack, uh, even, you know, to a small degree, the the commodity form, right? So we get these, uh, you know, corporate uh, corporate hacks, uh, right? These, like... uh, commodities that are 
you just add on to other commodities, um, and you know we call that the peripheral, I suppose. Right. I mean, it's um, it's you know I was just uh, rereading uh, from from Social Life of Things the uh, Igor Kopitov piece on uh, cultural biographies, and at, you know at some point there he says that the the opposite of the commodity is the singular. Right. Once a thing has a history, it, it's no longer a commodity, right? It's an artifact, a singular artifact. You know, once the leather bag has a particular scratch in it that you made, uh, yeah. it now is a singular object that is unique. And, mm-hmm. you know, with with plastic electronic objects, it's harder to, I mean, you could still put a scratch in them and certainly I own, you know, oh, yes, you know, this is my iPhone and the screen is broken, right? We all have mm-hmm. that experience or have seen people who carry around a, a phone with a broken screen for quite some time and it has a history through that defect, uh, you know, that, yes. that they've dropped it and broken the screen. But for the most part, this certain kind of gadget-ish object, uh, you know, the what we think of as the electronic object, it's hard to imbue with history, Right. We imbue it with history, maybe through software customization now, but um, historically, you know, to things like the Game Boy, back to the telephone, it was through these ridiculous attachments and you know uh, modifications, right, that we made to them. I know people who drilled holes through all kinds of you know electronic devices so that they could hook you know lanyards to them and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the search for customization, personalization, history. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <clears throat> well, of course, that's what Marx says about the commodity is that the history of its production is invisible, is obfuscated. We don't, we don't see that when we are just holding this shiny product in our hand. So maybe this desire for customization, for modification, for attachments, peripherals, etc., is... Uh, Right, a kind of repressed uh, desire for singular histories. Right, and I mean it's, it's to attend attend to our gadgets. Yeah, and uh, it, it's interesting to think about how companies, how capital has uh, t- taken charge of this critique and incorporated it into itself. Oh, it's good at doing that. Yes. Yeah, I mean all the iPhone attachments or. You know, similar kinds of things are now part of official licensing programs, right? Uh, made for iPhone or made for iPod, right? You can have a peripheral, but only if it's already part of our uh, commodity structure that you know a particular corporation has designed. Right. Uh, so you have the licensed, you know, Microsoft peripherals and the licensed Apple peripherals, etc., uh, etc. Et and I remember that was a big thing back in our day with the licensed Nintendo products, right? If you saw that golden uh, metallic sticker uh, that was officially licensed by Nintendo, you knew it was quality. Right, and I mean that, you know, in the historic case, that was a direct result of, you know, the video game crash, right? The fiasco that, you know, Atari... 83, yeah. Right, had had let anyone make, you know, any kind of game, basically, and flood the market with terrible games. You know, the infamous E.T., uh, video exactly, game. Exactly, yeah. 
And some people think, uh, well, n- n- then, of course, Nintendo was notorious for being very stingy with its li- uh, licensing and you know, kept very close control over its uh, products. And still to this day, um, they've, the, you know, that policy has held and some see their uh, decline in the last few years as, you know, a result of that, like refusing to, you know, license products for like mobile gaming, et cetera. Right. So to expand beyond their own. Uh, proprietary handheld systems, for example, uh, into like you know more popular uh, modes of gaming today, which is like mobile. Yeah, and, uh, I mean you know to some extent all all device manufacturers, all the people who manufacture the commodity gadget, are somewhat guilty of this. You know, it's not that uh, Sony or Microsoft don't do this with the distribution platforms for their games or. You know the peripheral availability for their games. It's just that Nintendo, you know, was by far the most extreme. Mm. You know, historically, uh, to the point where companies had to form other fake shell companies in the early days of you know manufacturing uh, Nintendo Entertainment System games, NES games, so that they could have because Nintendo put an arbitrary limit, like you could have two games a year or something, mm. right? And because you had to get the the cartridge through Nintendo. You had to abide by that or make your own cartridge, as, as some companies did. You know, the the weirdly shaped Nintendo cartridge that's a weird baby blue or, mm. you know, uh, has, you know, obvious LEDs and pins <laughs> and, you know, weird, uh, you know, yes. extruding chipsets. Our friend, the angry video game nerd. Uh, friend of the channel, yeah. <laughs> He's uh, chronicled a number of the more egregious examples of, of this sort of... Uh, you know, illicit uh, Nintendo products in, in hilarious fashion. Uh, I might add. Yeah, no, he also has uh, presented his own interesting critique of uh, the the peripheral. Um, he generally doesn't like peripheral <laughs> peripherals, uh, like uh, scope based uh, light guns, uh, various uh, you know uh, gimmicky uh, control schemes. Like uh, I remember the one for Genesis where you. It was like a it was like a circle that you stood in in the middle of and supposedly could like you know move your entire body. This is you know long before Connect. Uh, yes, it's, and, it's uh, the primitive version of the Connect. Uh. Yeah, OG Connect, but it uh, it never really worked. Yeah, or I mean, even you know, to the infamous Power Glove, or you know, the Power uh, Glove. Yeah, Nintendo's like track. I forget what it was called. The like mat. That thing kind of worked, uh, you know, for the the track and field game. Yes, I mean, obviously you can associate any kind of input to, you know, the two buttons on, uh, you know, these early... Yeah. uh, The trick with that one was to just use your hands uh, instead of, you know... Right. Um, I'm I'm looking here uh, at the uh, Angry Video Game Nerd, uh, where he's talking about the, 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 the Sega Genesis... And the sort of life cycle of the Sega Genesis uh, oh, right. to the point where they kept, you know, they, Nintendo had released the Super Nintendo or they were in the process of releasing the Super Nintendo. And, uh, you know, Sega continued to release their own, you know, system peripherals for the Genesis, like the Sega CD and the 32X. Uh, right. Literally plugged in, you know, to the side or to the top of the Genesis uh <laughs> Yeah. Um, I never had uh, either of those. I did have the Genesis. Um, 
the Sega CD was just a lot of full motion video point and click games. Yeah, in a in a very large software be- uh, like bezel, <laughs> where you know because they could only it, it, the the resolution, which is hilarious, because it's not as though the resolution on uh, you know standard definition televisions is particularly high, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, the resolution of the Sega CD video was even lower than that, so they literally had to inset it yeah. in this uh, you know little edge border, um, and it was still like one frame every five seconds. Uh, mm. I mean that's that's how it looked, you know. Or that's how it looks now. Maybe when when that was the the moment, it, it looked exciting. And uh, I detect a lot of nostalgia for that period of gaming in the air right now actually i know like these these um these systems that uh you can buy you know for like uh thirty dollars and target which they have like 40 genesis games you know built in with uh, a kind of replica of the actual genesis controllers uh i think they're still selling pretty well so well i mean there's some relatively high-end uh versions of these systems there's um a company which I, I can't recall the name of the company at the moment, but they make uh, wood, like custom, you know, fine wood uh, Atari consoles. They may they're making an aluminum or uh, titanium, you know, some kind of shiny metal uh, Nintendo system, which is basically, you know, running the original Nintendo hardware or a version of it mm. that has an HDMI input and it's a collector's retro object. Well, that's Which certainly a new genre yes. of uh, <laughs> artisanal emulation, right? I mean, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's a you know artisanal uh, emulator box that you will buy and put on your shelf, and you know it'll be the beautiful object. It also plays video games from you know twenty, thirty years ago. Um, I mean, would you see this as part and parcel of this sort of supposed you know return? Toward media materiality that we hear about when you know people like invoke uh, you know like vinyl sales being up four hundred percent or whatever it is in the last five years. Uh, yeah, like the an almost casual uh, or commodified kind of media archaeology in in practice in mm. in sort of commercial uh, life. Um, yeah, I mean. It, it, it's funny because I mean we could we can literally emulate any of these game systems on almost any device, right? Right. I mean you could play, you know, uh, a Nintendo game, an original Nintendo game, original Genesis game, uh, or Master System game on on your watch, you know, basically, <laughs> right? right. Um, on any any device that is made today, but there is still an interest in the original object, uh, you know, in mm. video game. Uh, cartridges sell quite well on eBay. Some of the mm. rare ones fetching incredibly high prices. Mm. Um, even even not particularly rare ones, or ones that I have personally that I don't think of as rare, um, because presumably people want to put them in real systems and play them, right? Yeah. Um, even though we should know, because it's software, right? And it's it it's slightly different than the case with uh, vinyl and you know CD because. You know, when CDs came out, it was a different process, right? It was sampling. Everyone was concerned about what that meant for audio quality. But the software is literally the software, right? I mean, this playing, there's no difference 
once the emulator is done and it has emulated everything, oh, right. there's, uh, there's really no difference between playing it on your phone that is running the, the good emulator, not mm. you know, a work-in-progress emulator, mm. but you know, an emulator that has you know, successfully reproduced uh, you know, the hardware system and the original system. It's software. There's no difference. Mm. It's not like the case of vinyl and CD where it was different. You know, we're sampling this. It's not, you know, grooves running through sure, uh, the sure. vinyl. Well, to say nothing of the compression that happens when then that CD is right. becomes an MP3. Uh, and, yeah, that, I mean, like, audio files will certainly uh, object. Yeah, but this is a, uh, a nostalgia for a prior form of the same... Uh, digital object, the piece of software, the video game. Yeah. Right? It's not the analog to digital conversion process that seems easy to understand that sort of nostalgia, perhaps. Yeah. Presumably nothing is really lost uh, from actual hardware cartridge being, or cartridge being inserted into actual hardware and then the pure emulation and, of that software. And yet, yeah, there is a market, you know, where, you know, people are acquiring things like original Nintendo controllers, uh, you know, the, the sort of core peripheral of the Nintendo experience, and using that base hardware, you know, to make them USB controllers or reuse them, right? They're using this finite commodity, the number of Nintendo controllers that was produced uh, over the <clears throat> Nintendo's lifetime as part of this retro uh, game market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is there is no software. Um, which I was just thinking today would be a good tagline for like a, a cyber thriller. Go on, go on. Well I don't know if you saw Black Hat. I went with Oh um, I didn't see it, no. I went with our mutual friend uh friend of the podcast, Kuros Esmeli, to see the new Michael Mann film uh Black Hat about uh, starring Chris Hemsworth yeah. about the Hacker culture. It's a terrible movie. I can't recommend it. Um, but uh, I, I think the review I, I I read the headline of a, re- a review and it said, "Will this change hacker movies forever?" <laughs> and I guess the answer is no, no or no. yes in a bad way. Uh, the, yeah, I mean ha- the hacking movie hasn't um, uh, really advanced much past. The Angelina Jolie classic Hackers, um, classic film from 1995. Gosh, 20 years ago now. This is the 20th. I think this is the 20th anniversary of that movie. Is, is that right? We're all getting old, I guess. But it's it's hilarious because you know in that movie they sort of take you under the hood as um, Wolfgang Ernst uh, might put it, and you kind of see the um, digital signals being sent through the computer circuitry. And, you know, this is kind of a common visual that you see in a lot of these, like, cyber, uh, you know, computer movies, like The Net or Hackers. You see, like, electrodes Mm -hmm. zipping along uh, wires and paths. And, yeah, basically, you see that in, in Black Hat as well, but it looks exactly the same as 20 years ago, in hackers so Kuros and I 
we're just quietly uh, laughing at this ridiculous <laughs> conceit um, amongst uh, so other... So it, it, too, has a kind of nostalgia for this <laughs> this old representation of the future, which is really the present. I don't know if it was a nostalgia just so much as an uh, utter failure to <laughs> imagine any other way to visualize... Um, computerized information moving through uh, networks. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, you know, thinking about the idea of the hacker and, you know, software. I mean, we're talking about two very different views of software. You know, the, the Nintendo game, right, the ROM that gets emulated now on emulators is the commodified version, the packaged piece of software. But that's, you know, of course, not the only way to think about software. We can think about software as a very, you know, open uh, thing, open to be hacked, right? And certainly, you know, early computer systems were not packaged products, right? They were kits. And, you know, the idea was that you would fiddle with them, right? They weren't, they weren't closed commodities yet. Right, they weren't black boxed in right. the, the way that, like, an Apple product is today. Right, and like an Apple product was, you know, with the release of the original Macintosh or, you know, even the, the Apple II, right? Mm-hmm. They, were, they were much more closed systems, right? And it was evident in the design of the, the case, right? You know, the case was the object. It wasn't about necessarily what was inside it um, uh, to the extent that, you know, what was inside it was listed on a little spec sheet, the person you know who sold you the computer uh, had, mm-hmm. and this was actually a debate uh, in the early days of the Apple uh, company. Um, the, the two Steves, right. Wozniak and Jobs, having kind of competing ideologies uh, of say openness versus um, the kind of "quote unquote" user friendly, closed, black boxed vision uh, that. Uh, Jobs had for Apple, which uh, obviously ultimately won out. Uh, Lori Emerson uh, tells this story well in, in, in a chapter in her recent book, Reading, Writing, Interfaces, mm-hmm. which I would recommend. It's called it's Chapter 2. From the philosophy of the open to the ideology of the user-friendly. Right. Yeah, the creation of the, the user as someone who doesn't interface with the, the, the low-level uh, material, but interfaces with a higher level of material, who mm-hmm. interfaces through peripherals, right? Through designed kinds of uh, interface or designed kinds of attachment, not through the sort of raw stuff of the system, right? Not through the raw stuff of the hardware or the raw stuff of the software. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's it's striking how this came to, you know, uh, consumer electronics, you know, computer electronics. I mean, there, there, it was certainly much slower in other kinds of commodities, right? I mean, even things that we recognize historically as commodities like the automobile, right, were much more hacker-friendly in some sense up until quite recently, right, until computers went into cars. Right. Um, so, you know, is, is the computer the ultimate closed object, right? You know, the object that closes other objects. Um, well, you know... Uh Paul Edward, okay. The Closed World. Oh, right. right. The Closed so, World. Right. It's this um, book about kind of the Cold War and the role of computers therein. Right. Friend of the channel, Paul Edwards. Uh, yeah. Uh, reading the, the description of the Closed World here. Um, a radically new alternative to the canonical histories of computers and cognitive science. Uh, Edwards argues that we can make sense of computers as tools only when we simultaneously grasp their roles 
as metaphors and political icons, um, and again, through you know the mm-hmm. Cold War social and cultural contexts. But there's something about this closing down of possibilities, uh, of ways of life, of uh, modes of expression, etc., that the computer introduces. Yeah. And I mean, not to say, again, that even though we're suggesting that the computer is capable of closing, uh, you know, structures or um, ways of experience, that it has to be that. Um, you know, I mean, right now there's there's lots of interest in, you know, uh, maker culture and computers that are accessible from a, a kind of hacking point of view, not only in the software but also in the hardware. Um, so certainly it'd be hard to think of any other kind of, you know, uh, consumer object, popular commodity that became as closed as quickly and has, you know, remained incredibly so as the computer. And I mean, part of that is, I guess, a story about complexity. Um, I mean, the telephone was closed also, right? It's, um, you know, it began as, you know, if you, if you look at the sort of legacy of telecommunication, you have something like the telegraph, which is, you know, published in a much more open way, right? You have anyone can sort of put together a telegraph and that information is out there. The telephone, you know, is less interesting by itself, right? It needs the network much more uh, quickly than the telegraph did in some sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could, yes, make your own sort of simple telephone, you know, if you were a, an electronic or, a, I guess, electric enthusiast, right, mm-hmm. if we go back to the time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it was less interesting to do so, you know, once the the network, you know, the monopoly uh, started connecting people to the telephone network. Mm-hmm. The network being, I guess, the closed object there, right? Um, or the object they tried to keep closed. Mm, mm. You know, let's go back to this idea of the peripheral. We had talked about um, uh, the book, The Peripheral. Right, which I haven't read. Well, I, I haven't read it necessarily, <laughs> but... Um, this is the new William Gibson novel uh, that just came out in late 2014, I guess. Gibson, the iconic uh, science fiction cyberpunk author, probably most famous for Neuromancer, coined the term cyberspace supposedly in that book. Right. Um, so, do you, do you know what the peripheral uh, the, the, of the title is in the book? I know the, you have read it, but perhaps you've you've read some some surrounding materials. Um, well, the the peripheral. You know the the eponymous uh, per- peripheral of the book mm. is uh, actually a cyborg avatar. Okay. So you connect to you know what was that terrible Bruce Willis movie um, where everyone had like bodies. Hudson they, Hawk. No, that's a, that's an okay Bruce Willis movie. Uh, but there was this um, this Bruce Willis movie which I, I'm sure I'll think of and by think Looper. of. No, that no, was, not that one. That was pretty good. I'll think of through Googling it, mostly. But um, where everyone has, like, a younger, perfect body they can kind of plug into. Um, uh, surrogates, yeah. I never heard okay. of that Okay, it's, it's, I, I, I said terrible, all right? Um, don't, don't, people listening at home, don't go out and rent that movie. Okay. Uh, pirate it if you have to. But, um, 
you know, I think it's interesting. And again, neither of us have read the book, so we're just kind of bullshitting here. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what podcasts. That's what podcasts are about. You know, the idea of the human body as the ultimate peripheral, right? Other bodies, remote bodies, that's as the ultimate attachment. Um, you know, it gets into it bridges the idea of the snap-on magnifier for the Game Boy with, you know, this sort of cyborgian impulse of physical attachment, but then externalizes even that. Mm -hmm. Mm. Right. And I mean, I think the, you know, just to begin with the idea of the body as, you know, as a device, as a gadget, and then, you know, the sort of cyborg impulse to create peripherals for it. I mean, we could go back historically uh, to, you know, the idea of the body as manufactured by God, right? And there are certain kinds of, you know, oh, you can't, you shouldn't get tattoos or you shouldn't get piercings because those are illegal attachments, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a religious sense, as opposed to a uh, technological or, uh, you know, uh, juridical sense. Right, right. And in the realm of kind of media technology studies uh, in the last few years, uh, Bernard Stiegler's arguments around uh, these questions have been pretty influential because for him, the human being, there is no natural, uh, you know, human being which isn't, you know, attached in some way to a peripheral, uh, a technical apparatus, right? For him, technics invents the human. Right. It's one and the same. They're both in in technology and the human are both kind of developing, individuating uh, together. It's one and the same process. Yeah, and I mean, I I would go out on a limb here and say that almost every uh, human, certainly every, you know, Western human uh, is attached, you know, to at least one device, right, the the mobile phone, uh, which, since it has itself attachments, creates a a sort of hilarious nested sense of peripherality, Mm. uh, where Mm. we, you know, are augmented by the mobile phone as peripheral to us and attached to it, but it might have its own, you know, snap-on batteries and snap-on, you know, decals, et cetera, that that modify it. So we start to get this, this, you know, this layering Mm. of peripheral attachment um, when you don't have your phone with you, do you feel less like a human being? Or when the battery dies, do you feel like a piece of you has died as well? I mean, that's that's a you know a complicated question. I certainly feel like a a different kind of human being. Um, you know, I think when when people talk about unplugging, right, they talk about you know removing themselves from the the current social experience. Which requires you to be attached to this peripheral, um, right? Right, um, and you know, there's some sense that this attachment is compulsory. Now we have to be attached uh, to feel part of the community. Yeah, I mean, it's it's ultimately when you know when we teach classes, what renders almost all. You know, the history of television, you know, shows like Seinfeld, totally incomprehensible to our students because, you know, almost 90% of the plots revolve around people being unable to communicate because they're, you know, apart <laughs> from each other and they or they have to go to a payphone, but that person's not, 
you know, at a phone that they could connect to. Communication is just completely different when you don't have when you have a, a location based communication system as yes. opposed to a peripheral <laughs> attached sense of communication. Yeah, I would say that George Costanza would have been at least ten percent less neurotic, you know, in the age of cell phones. Yeah. Ubiquitous computational cell phone usage. Yeah, I mean I, I think the go to example I always use in class is the uh, the episode where they're going to the movies and, you know, uh, <laughs> Well when Kramer's pretending seen, to be movie phone. Yeah, have you seen that horse face guy or what's the line? Um, uh, I can't remember it, but they're they, you know they're coordinating going to the movies, and um, they, George is in the wrong theater. Right? right, he ultimately ends up in the wrong theater because someone had the tickets, but then you stand outside, and there's no way to just say, you know, oh Elaine, the tickets are going to be waiting. Yes, you know, a quick text right. could have uh, exactly uh, cleared up a lot of these <clears throat> problems. Yeah, and. Uh, in, in that sense, the ability that we have through these peripheral devices makes our social experience profoundly different. Um, but, I mean, you know, I don't think they're intrinsic to humans, you know, the current state of peripheral attachment. I mean, we haven't quite gotten to that human as cyborg uh, moment yet. But um, it's certainly a different social order. Well, I certainly even have, have observed... And in my own uh, life, the way that uh, the cell phone, for example, has become, uh, you know, uh, a completely necessary uh, accessory peripheral uh, to navigate life in New York City, in any event, I can't imagine what it was like to walk around the city and not have a map of (laughs) the streets, say, you know, below 14th street where they start to get a little wonky. Uh, what did people do back then? Yeah, I guess you actually learned how to move around the city. Um, or you had a map, which some people still do. Yeah. I mean, you still see the, the occasional tourists. We assume they're tourists who pulls out the ridiculously large, uh, you know, physical map. Um, Although when I'm a tourist and I go to other countries, I use Google maps there too. You know, so, yeah, you know, uh, you know, when I was in China, I was <laughs> using Google Maps, looking at uh, characters, you know, using my phone to scan those characters to tell me what they meant or to match them, you know, in Google Maps to, you know, the street that I thought that I was on and then, you know, try to determine uh, how I was going. You know, not not in big cities, but in, in smaller cities. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, and I think that's all true. I think it has, you know, made those changes, but... I actually I think it's also interesting to think about the 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 negative changes that it has made. I don't mean things that we think are um, negative, but the kinds of communication that it has removed, because it certainly has. You know, uh, when I was you know before cell phones were dominant, it was not unreasonable to imagine stopping by somebody's apartment or house to to see if they were there. The pop in. The pop in. Today, that's almost inconceivable to me. Well, it would be considered rude, even. Exactly. You know, that form of social uh, engagement is, mm. is no longer, you know, permissible because it's, it's you know, again, it's, it's sort of a situated <laughs> model versus, you know, the human as agent, you know, attached in various ways to various 
uh, sources of information, sources of communication. Right, right. Yeah. Well, what's what this is making me think of, I don't know if you took note of um, the kind of cavalcade of think pieces that uh, spewed out a couple weeks ago. <laughs> all of a sudden, I, I, I don't know how these things get coordinated the way they do, but like all of a sudden in, in a, a matter of a, couple, a few days, there were like 10 or a dozen different pieces about uh selfie sticks oh yeah (laughs) and how what kind of you know terror this is uh being wrought on our sense of community and the you know just the the everyday aleatory uh encounters that one has with a stranger and that momentary uh you know act of trust that you instill uh to someone you don't know when you ask them to take a picture right some people have said that this is you know completely gone now when we can take our own pictures with a, a selfie stick. Yeah, the the GoPro on a stick. Uh, you know, I hadn't. I, I I knew this was a thing, but I hadn't actually experienced it. I guess because I haven't. You don't, been, go, to, you don't go to Times Square. Uh, well, yeah, I, I never go to Times Square. Uh, but I, I avoid. Yeah, I avoid touristy areas, and I haven't been on a trip since. I feel like this became. Because, yes, uh, people did it, but now it's everyone does it. <laughs> well, it's only become a thing, I think, within like the last three months or something. Right. Well, I was just over the weekend. I was at the um, Detroit Auto Show uh, looking at, uh, you know, it was uh, I was in Detroit. And it was uh, the thing to do, apparently. Sure. It was the okay. first day opening of the auto show. Yeah, why not? Uh, first public opening, anyway. And, uh, again, if you want to talk about an object that has become incredibly closed – you know, the automobile over the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years. Uh, of course, all some cars were always more closed, right? The, the very high-end cars um, were crafted maybe in a different way. But now every car is basically a completely closed object. You would never imagine opening up the engine to do, you know, fiddling or things like that. And it's all computer-controlled anyway. Right. But uh, I noticed everyone with the selfie sticks uh-huh. uh, taking pictures of themselves in front of these cars. Which, you know, was just ridiculous. (laughs) Because you used to worry about walking between one human being taking a picture of another human being, or multiple human beings. Mm -hmm. But now you just have people who are stretching their arm out, doubling their, you know, size. And you can't walk through their arm or, like, limbo around them. I don't know. Uh you got to be careful, I guess, not to knock the selfie stick out of their hand and then have send the whole contraption crashing to the ground. Well, I mean, I, I'm certain at some you know point in the not too distant future, you know, those selfie sticks will be replaced by the, the personal selfie drone. Uh, <laughs> you know, to go back to a, a theme from our our first episode of the logistics of perception. Right. You know, the the personal the drone. selfie drone. Right. Yeah. Uh, you'll just you know. Or you might not even launch it because at some point I'm sure they'll just follow you around. Everyone will have their own permanent drone peripheral, mm. you know, attached to them, tethered, mm. uh, monitoring them, uh, maybe taking, you know, uh, security mm. or uh, tourist yeah. photos of their our own like um, little geek. Yeah, remember from the abyss. Yes, exactly. It'll it'll be like, uh, which is which is interesting, you know, to think about different models of where humanity was going. Yeah, the Little Geek um, technological experience is now much more complicated in a, in a very mm. uh, physical way, right? Mm. We used to think about computers interfacing with the network, right? 
the social network, the technical network. Now we think about them going out into the world, you know, extending our reach, right? Much more cyborgian. Yes, the selfie stickification of computation. Yeah. What else can if we you, stick if you on will. a stick <laughs> and extend from ourselves? Uh, that that is the the impulse, isn't it? To to extend ourselves beyond our bodily bounds. Yeah, and I mean, I again, you know, my 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 impression of the the peripheral is that is the peripheral here being the uh, the Gibson uh, book is that you know the the human you know avatar that is the peripheral you know the eponymous peripheral of the book is that manifests the ability to extend you know one's the cruel fortunes of one's geography you can just simply plug in and you know be somewhere else right and again you know this is not completely new science fiction idea we we've seen science fiction authors explore this for extraterrestrial travel right the ability to plug into a remote operative you know mm -hmm. in similar kinds of scenarios but uh, it seems realized now that sense of extension uh, in, in a way that it wasn't maybe even you know even a year ago or five years ago mm. Mm. yeah Chappie was coming out this year yeah we've seen the trailer for that one I have <laughs> that's one I'm looking forward to um with the uh, the kids from Die Antword, all right? Yeah, I, I can't <laughs> believe that. Were, 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 you, were you at the movies together when we saw that? No. No. Um, oh, that's when uh, our mutual friend, Koros, friend of the channel, uh, made us go see that uh, terrible Rosewater movie, which was terrible. Uh, <laughs> nice. I mean, it was, it was fine, I guess, but um, yeah, that was the one of the trailers was oh, for, right, for, for Shappy. We, Shappy. All, we all instantly recognized it. Those ridiculous uh, singers. I, I don't know. what. How do you describe these people? Um, rappers? Yeah, artists. <laughs> abstractly so. But, uh, Yolanda and Ninja from the South African art hip-hop collective Die Antwoord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yolandi Visser. Uh, Visser? Yeah. And... Uh, Watkin Tudor Jones, a.k.a. Ninja. Ninja. Right. Yeah. Um, and that guy always seems to bring in some kind of, like, allegory of South African politics uh, into his film. So it could be interesting. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm always up for seeing, you know, what uh, what he's, he's come out with. Uh, although I don't think they've... Well, certainly the last uh, movie... Um, District Nine or no Elysium? Elysium. Yeah, nice. District Nine. I you know I quite enjoyed. I think Elysium was not quite there, but uh, I never saw it. Oh, don't, yeah, don't. <laughs> um, if you want to hear Jodie Foster do a, a strange accent, um, <laughs> then I suppose that's the movie for you. But uh, I yeah. like Jodie Foster. I like Jodie Foster a lot, but that was not her movie. <laughs> it was um, it was strange portrayal. You know, it, it often, sometimes portrayals like that make me wonder how much was left on the, the cutting room floor, you know, of that characterization. But um, it was not as good as Live, Die, Repeat, formerly known as Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, right. Wait, I thought it was Edge of Did they? They sort of like officially, unofficially changed the, the name of the movie because it didn't do particularly well. 
in the theaters, even though it, like it got some good um, reviews and stuff. So to sort of give it a, another chance uh, on video and you know streaming services and whatnot, they kind of changed the title in, in this way. Well, yeah, I'm looking now at the the theatrical release poster, and it has both both titles. Presumably, one is the tagline and one is the title. But, right, but then they actually changed so the tagline. They changed yeah. the tagline into the title. It's well, even from the poster, there's no way you could tell because "Live, Die, Repeat" is very large and it's the first thing. <laughs> but then it has below it "Edge of Tomorrow" in sort of borders that makes it look a little tidily, but it's much smaller. So it's just yeah. you know completely confusing all around. But um, well, you know, I think. Uh, Perhaps we're we're venturing a little a little farther <laughs> afield here, uh, but you know the the uh, you know the Matt and Jason uh, movie hour. It's our uh, sister podcast that we're sure. we're planning on launching. Sure. We review you know in the the classic uh, uh, Ebert and Roper, uh, <laughs> uh, Siskel and Ebert style traditions. Um, thumbs up, thumbs down. I'll give Elysium a, a thumbs down. Um, what about Oblivion? Which ones? Is that the one with uh, where there are multiple Tom Cruises? The other Tom Cruise one. That's the one where they're like Tom Cruises. It's like clones, but they're not. Well, yeah, they are clones, I guess. I don't know if I. I've only seen like half you, of it. I you, guess I didn't get to the clone. Oh yeah, that's the big Tom reveal. Cruise I'm fun. sorry. Uh, also, Moon clones. Anyone? The spoilers. Spoilers left and right. Uh, and again, maybe this will will help wrap this up. You know, clones are very prevalent right now in all sorts of, you know, contemporary uh, productions. You know, I'm thinking of things like, you know, Moon, things like Oblivion. Uh, You know, clones are not a new science fiction trope, but shows like Orphan Black, etc. Have you seen Orphan Black? I've seen Black Mirror. Oh no! Orphan Black is—it's amazing. Everyone, Everyone's all both about, those shows are amazing. Everyone's all about Black Mirror now. Black Mirror is also very good, you know, and I like Charlie Brooker a lot. But um, Orphan Black is a uh, is about clones. Uh, well, spoilers. Clone, clones, seriality, television. Yeah. Why is everyone interested in seriality now? All of a sudden. Well, I was thinking that it was everyone was interested in that idea of extension that you were you were suggesting. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the idea of clones is sort of the ultimate in personal extension. Mm-hmm. Multiplicity with Michael Keaton and Andy McDonald. It's, that's a classic. Yeah. Michael Keaton having a bit of a, a career renaissance, perhaps. Yeah. I liked Birdman well uh, enough. Thumb, thumb up. Thumb up. Yeah, thumbs Two up. Two thumbs up. <laughs> Two talons up. <laughs> um, yeah, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's something about the, yeah, the, the idea of extension, the idea of, I mean, it is both seriality and multiplicity. Um, yeah, television is uh, part and parcel of this serial impulse. Yeah, television is one of the areas where. I feel like there are fewer and fewer peripherals than perhaps there were at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the television used to be defined by a box that you stuck other boxes around and plugged them into it. Right. That right. identity as the center of a peripheral ecosystem. 
seems to be disappearing. The electronic hearth model. Right. It's now maybe a player in, you know, a, a you know, network of devices of which you are one through your phone computer attachment. Mm-hmm. If we had to <laughs> wrap this up. So yeah, the, the peripheral an interesting portal into a number of salient issues related to media, culture, communication. Um, and hopefully in future episodes we can pick up on this this strand of thematic strand, the peripheral of attachment, of extension, of prosthesis. Yeah, and I mean uh, I think the, the reason for our interest here is, you know, in the in, the title of the podcast, The Logistics of Perception, it seems that this idea of uh, the peripheral attachment, um, different ways, and again, the, you know, we're just throwing out different terms, you know, like like the gadget, you know, just sort of not really technical, but almost casual archetypes mm. uh, to think through some of these concepts, but they're uh, somehow logistical concepts, right? I mean, it's, it's different ways mm. of uh, optimizing different uh, orders of network interaction or social, you know, social network interaction or technical network interaction. Um, and I, our discussion mm. about the situated versus, you know, the attached, I think, is maybe a way to highlight that. Yes. Yeah. And orchestrating bodies and, and machines in space um, is really what we're what we're getting at when we talk about logistics, and this is um, one way to think about peripheralness. So let's uh, bring this second episode to a close here, and thank the audience for listening. Hopefully, uh, it won't take as long to get the third episode out to the. the I know many fans of uh, the logistics of perception. And uh, hopefully uh, guests will, will be appearing soon. I, I've heard about some guests. Aside from just us. So, yeah, thank you for tuning in to this second episode of Logistics of Perception. And we will all see you soon. Mm-hmm.